Megalopod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special edition of the Empire Podcast. The 64th BFI London Film Festival is happening right now, film fans, in, well, London, obviously, but also online because of, you know, COVID. And one of the jewels in its crown is undoubtedly Soul, the latest wondrous offering from animation giant Disney Pixar and giant animator director Big Doctor. He's very tall, you see. He's the very tall guy behind basically my three favourite Pixar movies to date, Monsters, Inc., Up and Inside Out. Three increasingly bold and experimental films which push the envelope for animated movies in all kinds of ways, visually, intellectually and emotionally. Tell me that Up didn't leave you a sodden mess and I will call you a liar. Yet Soul may be Doctor's most ambitious movie to date, with a dizzying onslaught of ideas accompanying the story of Jamie Foxx's Joe Gardner, a music teacher from New York who, hours before he gets his big break as a jazz pianist, falls down a manhole and finds himself bound for the great beyond. Naturally reluctant to embrace the concept of being dead when his dreams are about to realise, Joe rebels and winds up in the great before, the unearthly realm where souls are essentially created. There, he teams up with a rambunctious soul named 22, voiced by Tina Fey, and they embark upon an adventure that takes him to places I won't even begin to spoil, but you will not guess where this movie goes. It's bold, it's vibrant, it's unpredictable, it's often beautiful, it hits you right in the feels, it should be called Strange Doctor and the Multiverse of Madness, if you ask me. And the fact that it's playing at a film festival alone should clue you in that there's more here than you might expect from your average animated film. And as you are most likely aware by now, the film is not going to get a theatrical release in the midst of the pandemic and will instead be making its debut on Disney Plus on Christmas Day, which is December 25th, in case you're not sure when Christmas Day is. That news was announced just before I sat down with a Zoom chat with Doctor, his co-writer-director Kemp Powers, who also wrote One Night at Miami, the Regina King-directed movie, which also played at the LFF, and the producer Dana Murray for a wide-ranging chat about the film, the LFF, their inspirations, how they deal with disappointment in their careers, and Graham Norton. It'll make sense when you listen to the interview, trust me. Rest assured... I'm aware that this is taking place two months before the film comes out, and there are no spoilers for Soul in this interview. In fact, we hope to be doing a spoiler special podcast with Pete and Kemp nearer the film's release in December. Frankly, I had a blast talking to the team. I hope you do too. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined in this very special edition of the Emperor Podcast by the director, co-director and producer of Soul, respectively, Pete Doctor, Kemp Powers and Dana Murray. How are you all? Good. We are wonderful. Yeah, thank you for having us. Oh no, thank you for for being here. Well, virtually, of course, uh, because you know, <laughs> under normal circumstances, I've read something in the news about a pandemic. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I haven't really been keeping track. You guys would Chris, be here. You've been, You'd been be in outside London. <laughs> <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not a lot. Uh-huh. The outside yeah, world no, doesn't I'm, hold much for me. We would love to be in London, man. What we wouldn't give to be in London. Yeah, it's been I mean, you know, this this thing sucks. You know, we made this movie. I mean, look, we're lucky to be able to to be continuing working during all this. But boy, it would be, you know, we're making movies. We'd love to go around the world and see the movie with people. 
Yeah. And instead, everybody's stuck at home. So, But still, what does it mean to you? You know, it's playing as part of the London Film Festival. The LFF is still is still going ahead, which is great. What does it mean to you guys to be part of, of this festival? Uh, it's so fantastic. I, I just, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of like, I can walk a little taller knowing that my movie is in the London Film Festival. That's, there's prestige there, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. And, and frankly, uh, you know, with the films coming out on, uh, on Disney Plus in December, which we're very pleased people will get to see it. But it's also nice to know people are going to see it in a theater yeah. and uh, with, uh, with an audience. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I'm a huge fan of film festivals anyway. And so it is really great to know. I mean, I'm jealous actually, because you have to understand the, um, the pandemic um, hit us before we were actually finished with the film. So we, um, we had to finish the film remotely. So in the, in the case of soul, many of the people who worked on it, the crew of the film have not seen the completed fully mixed oh, yeah. film yet. <laughs> so, you know, there's that, those audiences represent, a bigger group of people who've seen the movie than the crew who've actually worked on the film. Oh my so, God. I'm just glad that an audience is having a chance to see it and react to the film together in a way that we haven't been able to do with our own crew. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I can describe it for you, Camp, if you, if you want me to. <laughs> do, do, they, do you get a lot of laughter at the New York Knicks joke? Or is that... <laughs> um, I, I laughed. I laughed. You okay. know, but uh, <laughs> you might have to change that one to an Arsenal joke. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for British fans. Uh, the announcement was made the other day, obviously, about opening on Disney Plus on Christmas Day. But is there a part of you you would want to see it on the big screen? We feel really lucky to have the Disney Plus platform so that, like you said, like feels a little bit like we get to give a gift on Christmas um, Day to people and, 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 and more people will probably actually see it now. So we're excited that at least people are going to be watching it now because it seems timely. We are really lucky because we, all, we also felt that this film was the right film for right now to be released and to potentially have to push it to some unknown date in the future and instead get it out to our audience at this time when we think people would really appreciate it is, is really where we're lucky to have that. Well, as you say, it is a film for right now. For, for me, it was very much a, a bomb for the soul, pun unintended. Uh, and Pete, obviously this project began with you uh, a number of years ago, really. Uh, but is this, is this something that you've been building to throughout your career? I mean, there, you know, there, there seems to be a logical progression from Monsters, Inc. to up, from up to Inside Out, and then from Inside Out to this. So is this, is this a movie you couldn't have made 10 years ago? You had to take a certain step to make this movie now. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the cool thing about working at Pixar, you know, we're in a unique position where I think everything we do has a sort of candy coating to it. So it, it, it appeals to a large audience, but it, that also allows us to think of them almost like indie films, you know, that, that at the heart of each one of them uh, is something that the director, the filmmakers are, are feeling very intensely um, and want to talk about. So they are all the films I've worked uh, that I've done anyway, are very personal and, and a real slice into my life at this juncture in time. Um, I'm not sure I would have for sure. I would not have been able to make soul like 10 years ago. I'm not sure I would be able to make monsters Inc today, you know, or at least it would be a different different thing mm. um, because they are very, very personal. And so where did this begin for you? Well, to be honest, it, it happened after Inside Out, which, um, you know, we, we were lucky enough to really enjoy 
uh, great success with that film financially. You know, the audiences liked it. We got good critics uh, write-ups and, and, and yet I sort of felt like, okay, I built my whole life to do this. And it's, I, I feel like this is as good as it gets right here. I, we hit it. Now what? Now, what do I do? I just, I, do I go back and I, do I do that? Do I do it again? What do I, maybe I should be doing something else. What should I be? What's the right way to, to live how, if there is one? And then, so those questions kind of tumbled around in my head. I don't know if that's like a midlife crisis or an existential <laughs> crisis or what, but that was the, the origin, the sort of foundation level of this film. And um, then we started just playing around with ways of expressing that. And the first version of it was about this soul who looked down on earth and said, you know what? That looks like a lot of pain and suffering and disappointment. I want nothing to do with that. I'm staying here. So the first character, uh, the, the star of the film, the, the lead was 22. And then as we got into it and realizing that, okay, if you're really going to answer that question, you got to go to earth. You got to uh, show what is worth, uh, worth it about life. And that's where we then developed this character of Joe, mm-hmm. made him a, a jazz musician. That's about the time Kemp came on. That was about two years into it by the time we got all those specifics in place. Believe it or not, we're stupid. It takes <laughs> us a while. <laughs> and Kemp, can you talk about what, uh, how the project changed when you came on board? With something Pete said there that intrigued me was this idea that these movies are personal movies. And I've I'm, I've always been fascinated by this idea of co-directors on animated movies and how you confuse two personal points of view and two personal stories into one complete whole. Mm-hmm. How did that happen for you on this? Well, let's see. How did the film change? I guess, you know, it got a heck of a lot blacker. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <it did. laughs> I mean, that's everyone's kind of asking that leading question, but because it's important to understand that my contributions were not simply limited to anything involving a black person. Kemp, take it away. Uh, you know, it's the, the surreal. I'm, I'm just as much at fault for a lot of the surreal elements in the, you know, crazy elements <laughs> I am. Yeah. Um, when the, when the hip hop music pops on, <laughs> but seriously, the, the reality of it is though, that one of the, when I, when I first was exposed to the film, it was an early reel and mm. the Joe character, there was a debate going on about whether Joe was going to be the main character or 22 was going to be the main character. And I think there were a lot of voices that said, maybe this should be a film about 22. And it came from this place of Joe being not very clearly defined. Um, he, he was kind of still almost like an empty vessel. So, you know, all joking aside, I did pour a lot of my personal experiences into kind of building out uh, the background and life of this character, Joe, who I saw like endless potential with. But but in order to build that out, you know, the story obviously had to change. Joe's supposed to be a middle aged black New Yorker. And one of the things that I noticed was that, you know, it's like he needs to spend time passing through authentic black spaces. You know what I mean? Like because that's part of life in a not just in New York City, but London or any multi-ethnic diverse city is that people of those various ethnicities also while mixing up with everyone else often go home to or pass through places where there's other people who look like them so you know i wanted it to new york is my hometown i wanted it to look like a new york that i recognized and and that all kind of started with joe but of course you know once you kind of get into the mix uh, again the whole process of telling the entire story becomes very collaborative. But yeah, Joe was definitely my way in. And I and I wanted to make, a, and I made a strong case that 
this should be Joe's story. Like we shouldn't shy away from Joe being being the lead, um, particularly since it's um, a black man. And, you know, it, it's it's not uncommon in a lot of Hollywood storytelling for, you know, black characters to, to simply be be used um, in the assistance of other yep. characters, <laughs> particularly white characters. You know, the the there's the there's the magical Negro trope, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's like we don't want Joe to be magical. His his life and his journey is is the point of this film and it's what has value. So I, I think I made I, I you know I you could ask Pete and Dana but I I think I've always been pretty vocal about that being an important part of the story and what made Absolutely. it special for me. Yeah, but I think it is all up to everybody on the show to find some connection with uh, the theme and and make it their own and bring you know some of their own life experience down to you know the the lighting team the animators everybody. Uh, is contributing in uh, in in larger or small ways to the film, and um, it's our job as directors to communicate what it is we're trying to say, and try to speak it in a way that allows people to hook in and go like, "Oh yeah, I've felt that. I know what you're talking about there," and that way then they can bring. Uh, it's a such a communal effort, you know, making yeah. these films it takes hundreds of people, um, but that's our main job as as directors is is explaining where we're coming from emotionally and creatively um, so that people can get on board. Mm. Dana, can you talk me through how you shepherd a movie like this, a movie of this size? And there are so many moving parts and Pixar famously can always roll with the punches. There's the, the, you know, the famous very early example about how Toy Story 2 was pretty much remade from scratch with just a few weeks to go before it came out. Uh, so that's always been in the company's DNA. But with something like this, where, you know, Kemp comes on with two years gone, I presume the project begins to change. How do you navigate those changes? How do you shepherd this through those changes? My job as producer is partnering with these guys to make sure that whatever we are creatively trying to make shows up on screen. And so a lot of that is becoming building a plan that changes literally every day. And so coming into work and just seeing what's being thrown at me and figuring out getting the right people in the right room at the right time for the right conversation. Uh, Another big part of what we did on this film was um, build a lot of cultural consultants. And we had a big cultural trust within the company and then external consultants. And so a big part of my job was also um, kind of like managing that process, which that would, you know, they were involved in not only the story, but character design, set design, um, music, like all of that. So that was a big part along the, the way. And um, I don't know, as a producer, I kind of feel like you have to be a chameleon to show up <laughs> whatever that room is with those people and you have to turn into what you need to be in that moment. So I feel like maybe that's what I was doing every day. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Uh, It's a movie about a guy who is desperately holding on to a dream and doesn't necessarily want to admit that he may not make it. And he has a sheer bloody mindedness and a sheer willpower. For the three of you who have made it, did you ever experience doubts like that? And and if so, how did you get through them? Experience doubts every day. <laughs> yeah, I was say, have we gotten through them yet? I think that um, this is just, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm usually feeling doubtful about the stuff, elements of doubt, even when I, I've always been like, even when I'm super proud of the project, because mm. I am this, 
until you see people's reaction to it, you really don't know what to expect. And there's a lot of doubt there. And then you, despite the good reaction, you then go into your next project filled with the same doubts all over again. It's actually kind of a, I almost think like maybe we have some kind of unique psychosis where we're like in, addicted to the self-doubt and like trying to fight up against it and like plow through it. And, and ha- I don't know, it's just, it's a, yeah. uh, I've had family members tell me that like, it's, it's almost like watching someone abuse themselves on purpose again and again and again with, with, with the projects that we, because it always feels like the stakes are so high. I think it's one thing that's helpful is that when people kind of remind you, like Pete says it all the time, he's like, like, dude, we're making cartoons. You know, like <laughs> it's, a, it's nice to hear someone say that out loud because when you're in the mix, it doesn't feel like you're making a cartoon sometimes. It feels like, you know, like we are making the biggest thing that's ever been made of all time. And there's so many people, you know, with their withering glares looking at it. But then, you know, you kind of step back and just realize ultimately you're just trying to make something that's entertaining people that entertains you because ultimately we are our harshest critics and we're also you know, where we're also kind of our own audience. We, 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 we consume this stuff when we're not making it, you know, we're all mm. fans of other animation. I mean, there's no person at Pixar who doesn't revere Miyazaki. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's no, like when you, when you hear about other animated films that are good, like I've been struggling to try to get a screener of Wolf Walkers, which I heard is like a really good, you know, a- animated film. Um, and, and so yeah, we actually are fans of this stuff that we make. We do take it way too seriously, man. When we have a bad screen or something, it's like we have to hire grief counselors, you know, because yeah. people just, <laughs> they they fall to pieces. They think, oh, the place is going to fall apart. We're all going to get fired. I mean, we do we do take it very seriously. They, they bring out the therapy dogs. That's what the therapy dogs <laughs> at Pixar are for. Kind of. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> and, then they, and then they go, squirrel. And then it's, you know, the, the moment is gone. <laughs> right. But not Bob. Bob is always sunny. I have to say, Bob Peterson, the guy who did Squirrel Voice, I've yeah. never seen that guy like not seemingly like peppy. <laughs> kind of just you haven't worked sense. with him that closely, Kemp. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> always seems peppy when I run into him in the cafeteria. Oh, that's good. No, he is. He's a great, great guy. I love working with Bob. Kemp said something really interesting there as well. He said that Pete keeps reminding him, we're making cartoons, dude. And yes, you are making cartoons, but at the same time, this is a really this is a, a a a movie, a cartoon that doesn't condescend. It doesn't talk down to its audience. It quotes George Orwell for God's sake. It has a score by the blokes from Nine Inch Nails for another yeah. God's sake. Um, it is it you know there's quantum physics in here. There's Archimedes in here. Its references and talking points are remarkably and I think deliberately adult. Yeah, I think. You know, from the beginning, from Toy Story on, that's been kind of our our approach is to say, look, we're the first audience. We're making this, but we're the first ones that are going to see it. What's what am I going to laugh at? What am I going to be intrigued by and think more about and 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 want more of? So that's really, you know, when people say, "Who are you making these movies for?" I go, "Me." You know, I'm making it for me. I I know people in the long run, um, and and this is not. I'll contradict myself now. Uh, in the end, I know that the audience is the thing that I'm trying to please. So, you know, um, when you're sitting there in the dark, you can have the highest, loftiest aspirations in the world. 
But when the audience is quiet or rustling and they're bored, you want nothing more than to entertain them. So it's this kind of push and pull, really, of, of um, starting with something that's intriguing to me and then trying to make it as sure as I possibly can that it's communicating and re- received by the audience, that, that they're intrigued by it as well. Um, and, you know, it, it comes down to a lot of like, it could be the subject matter, but it also could be the way in which we're communicating that subject matter. And so a lot of our job, uh, all three of us on a daily basis, comes down to craft, you know, to, uh, you know, it's always fun to think about all the philosophical things, but then how are we actually going to do it? What's, uh, what are the specifics of the way we're setting up our character? Where are the, t- the turn points? How do we tra- track the arc? You know, all mm-hmm. those kind of craft related things. Um, that's, that's the lion's share of the job. I love that some of our jokes that seem so adult are so great for kids because like my kids saw it and they're like, mother Teresa, you at least get to like, have a chance to explain who these historical people are. <laughs> yes. Did they but, know mother Teresa? No. Mm-mm. Okay. So now, well, now it's a learning did. opportunity. But I'd also say our audience, so we um, we pulled together, you know, audience previews. I think it was like six or seven months before, no, probably, probably more five months before we were finishing production. Those are the most stressful days that bring out your insecurities because you care so deeply that these people get the movie and like the movie. And so even though it starts from a place where Pete's talking about, like he's making it for himself, it's like, we're absolutely hundred percent making it for the audience and it's you're, you're dying inside until those are over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, it's a validation, isn't it? Because you, I I mean, again, at the end of the, like I said before, we, we go out and we see movies ourselves a lot, you know what I mean? And there's nothing that you, I mean, he can take it for granted because he's already done it. He's got films under his belt, but like I see when I, I remember the magic of being in the theater and seeing a movie like Ghostbusters, you know, or seeing a movie like Toy Story, and who who doesn't at the end of the day? And like, when I start getting that feeling about something that I'm making, I'm going to assume that an audience is going to feel the same way because I am that audience. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm, I'm a guy who, again, growing up, being in my mid 40s, I mean, the weekend that I saw Gremlins in theaters was a transcendent weekend for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> And and I and I want I want audiences to be able to have that same experience of sitting in a theater and having their mind blown. And 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 I'm but I'm also, you know, like and, and it's great because you know our peers are are notoriously difficult to impress. Yeah. Um, because a lot of them not only have seen everything, but they've made a lot of these films, you know. You know, Pete is, you know, has Toy Story and Monsters Dick and all these films under his belt. And you have the creators of all these really iconic films. So when you can get a little bit of a rise out of them with something, you really start feeling confident. But Dana was right in that ultimately it still is a bit of a Pixar bubble. And when we go out to the audience is when we find out if if we really have been achieving that thing or whether, you know, we, we we've kind of gotten a little bit too clever for our own good. And inevitably there will be a few things that we kind of see in those audience previews, like, okay, well, we thought it was funny, but we're weird. And then we kind of of move them around. I'm still lamenting my Rasputin joke. I couldn't get into soul. I had this, I was like, I was trying to get Rasputin into soul 
so long uh, and it just kept right. getting cut out and it was just like all right this rasputin joke isn't gonna fly so you got, you got your julia child in there i did get a julia child reference in there coming out of the mouth of the black guy which was really important to me <laughs> all from the barbershop references julia child was really very Amazing. key <laughs> that's really what it's all about right is at the end of the day is communication i want to say something and connect with people i've never met around the world over this thing that I've felt deeply. And when that happens, it is, that's why you do this. The Rasputin gag not making it in. Kemp, Rasputin's meant to be unkillable. What's, what happened there? But that was part of the gag. Anyway, I'll, it, I don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, it would, it would result in spoilers. Yeah, that was, um, the, the point of it was that, you know, you'll, you, have you seen the film? I have you, seen, you the seen the film. I have. Well, you know, there's a point at which they say, no, one of the counselors says, you know, someone hasn't, the count hasn't been off in hundreds of years. The second part of that was the last time it was off was Rasputin. So there you go. There's like the, 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 the B point of a, a reference made in the film that now, you know, you're the first one to know that that's where I was trying to go with that. But uh, I noticed Chris isn't laughing. So maybe there's a reason I, I, it was I, cut. <laughs> Can I just say, I'm not laughing. I'm laughing on the inside because the microphone will make you guys cut out. That's why. So I'm, right. I'm laughing <laughs> silently. I think it's a great joke. You have two months to get it back in on Disney+. Plus. I'm just saying. <laughs> nope. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Rasputin is officially dead. You talk about, you know, this movie being funny and how audiences react to it and in, in you know in, in in terms of the 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 gags going over people's heads but it's also really bold in other areas as well did you find that audiences or have you found that audiences are on board with things like i don't want to get into spoilers necessarily but things like the fact that there are two scores in this i love that idea you got the john batiste jazz score you have the you know, trent reznor and atticus ross more ephemeral score yeah it's uh, and both of those uh teams were so great uh to work with and and uh, i think connected deeply to the film in in each their own way um yeah audiences i think um it's funny i always feel like my dad my dad is a um a musicologist so he he i remember as a kid i was listening to stravinsky and he was like i i just couldn't understand stravinsky just listening to music i was like what can you explain this to me dad my my dad says there are two things that are opposing in music. And I think this is true in film too. Surprise and expectation. If you come in and you just have everything totally expected, it's boring. On the other hand, if it's every moment a surprise, you have nothing to anchor yourself and you're so disoriented, you're out. So you have to find that sweet spot between surprise and expectation. And that changes, you know, depending on your audience, depending on the time and history. Um, and, and so I think, you know, our films have been trying to do that too. Toy Story surprised a lot of people. We had enough elements in there during the computer graphics of it and the fact that it wasn't a musical and things. Now that's old hat. That's stuff like, okay, if we did that again today, they would, they, you know, audiences would get bored. They need more surprise. So it's just a, a constant shifting and, and finding that that balance point. Mm, absolutely. I saw the film yesterday and uh, there's a character in the movie called Moonwind. And as he began talking, I thought to myself, that sounds like Graham Norton, but it can't be Graham Norton. Because why yeah. would Graham Norton be in a Pixar movie? And then I saw the credits and I was like, oh, that is Graham Norton. So yeah. what's what's the story there? Graham Norton is just great. We love him. 
Uh, we, we, we wrote this character and he's kind of inspired off like the old Monty Python or even the Goon Show further back, you know, kind of characters. Or, or uh, another one I grew up on was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, all mm-hmm. these radio shows that were produced in, in the UK. So we looked around and Graham Norton was just fantastic to work with. Uh, he's a great actor. Uh, we, we loved him. Yeah, Pete was the scratch voice for Moonwind, by the way. In Scratch, I was. Pete, Pete was the original voice of Moonwind as we were making yeah. it. So you should hear it. And then Pete's English accent was pretty fun. And we had the professional come in and do it for real. <laughs> Did you find him outside Pixar HQ spinning a, a sign around going, I'm available, <laughs> will work? No, I think I mean, it would be interesting to talk to him about it. I think he was as surprised as you are of, uh, that we would, you know, because it's not like he was making a living doing uh acting gigs these days yeah. i mean he's got his amazing show so um i don't know you should have him on and see what he says <laughs> well how could he answer questions i mean that's you know he's he meant to ask the questions yeah that'd be weird <laughs> we'd be breaking one of the immutable laws of the universe i, I feel but yeah you never know you never know well guys it's been an absolute pleasure i wish you could be here in london right now if you were in london right now very very quickly each of all three of you what's the first thing you would do it's and chips Fish and chips? Dishoom. Oh, yeah. Good good answer. I'd have a gin and tonic. <laughs> I could do here, but for some reason, it's especially good there. Especially good. Uh, awesome. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Pete, Kemp, Dana, thank Thanks, you very Chris. much indeed. Thank you. And that was the tremendous Pete Doctor, Kemp Powers, and Dana Murray talking about Disney Pixar's Soul, which I cannot reiterate enough, is out on Disney Plus on December 25th, a.k.a. Christmas Day. And if you want to check out the London Film Festival, it runs until this Sunday, October 18th. And there are tons of great films still to come, including Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor, David Byrne's American Utopia, directed by Spike Lee, and another Lee, Francis Lee's eagerly awaited follow-up to God's own country, Ammonite. And there are great screen talks too, including our very own editor-in-chief, Terry White, in conversation with Lee David Byrne, on Thursday, October 15th at 8.30pm. That'll be on YouTube. And a doozy with George Clooney, Lee George Clooney, on Sunday at 4pm. For more information about the LFF, to get tickets to the remaining films and screen talks, go to bfi.org.uk. Right, that's enough for me. Just a reminder that the regular Empire podcast is out every Friday, and this week's guest is none other than Kevin Bacon sizzling stuff. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to have a gin and tonic with fish and chips at Dishoom. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.